Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earle. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 75. I'm Amanda Earle, and I'm here today with Jennifer K. Dick. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, this is great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. You're my second overseas guest, so uh, so let's hope everything works without without a without a hitch. Sometimes we have hitches. I'd like to start with your uh, bio. Hopefully, I, I can read this without without uh, having troubles. Uh, not that there's anything difficult about the bio, just because I seem to be reading in the dark right now. But it will. It'll come. The sun will come back. <laughs> Jennifer K. Dick is an author, translator, readings curator, and assistant professor of American literature at the Université de Haute Alsace, Mulhouse, France. Her previous books include Circuits and Fluorescence. That which I touch has no name is forthcoming from Eyewear Publishing in London. Her chapbook Afterlife was published by Angel House Press in 2017, and she is circulating a, a, a book called Shelf Break. So welcome, welcome to the show. And today Thank you for having me. You, you, we're going to be talking mostly about uh, your, your book from 2019 from Corrupt Press, which is Lilith, a novel in fragments. And I'll, put, I'll make sure to put up the link to your, to your, um, your site and your, your, uh, the book as well, the Corrupt Press link as well. So we'll, uh, we have Thanks. some quotes. And we'll do that. Thanks. I'm really also thrilled to say a new review just came out on Jacket 2 of the book by um, Alex Dickow. So that comes at just the time when we're doing this podcast, which is which is kind of wonderful. That's great. I look forward to I look forward to reading that. So, can you start by telling uh, telling us a little what would you like what would you like people to know about Lilith, a novel in fragments? Um, what would I like you to know generally about Lilith, a novel in fragments? It was originally it was it was two books that were sort of separate, and then over time, over a really long period of time, this book was begun before. Um, much before Circuits, which came out far earlier, um, but it, it came out as two sort of separate books that eventually merged and came together, and that's why I call it a novel in fragments. It moved through different spaces. Originally, it was one book that dealt with the, the series of poems that you notice throughout, that come throughout, that, that go through the senses, and then the coda, and then the other sections, the enclosure sections. But eventually, I realized that the work married well and, and moved through different explorations because the main character, Lilith, or Lily, is, is blind. And she's blind and she's kind of unaware that she has, she has, you know, also not speaking. Um, she can speak, but she's just not speaking. And she has a kind of partner, uh, an absent present in, in the book, male partner, who is, um, as you say in French, affolé. He's completely out of his mind about the fact that, you know, this is going on. And, and is, you know, there are a lot of sections which deal with him trying to get her to speak, trying to control her. And it, it is along the way, a long exploration of, of the old questions of, of gender, of self, of what one knows through the different senses, like the tactility of the world, yeah. the visuality of the world. Um, visually, it is a very visual book. The pages move all over the place, which is kind of funny, given that Lilith herself, or Lily, has lost her ability to see. Um, and I, I've always found that interesting, that for me, the poems moved across and through the page in all of these different fragmented ways and yet the main character the voice behind them was herself unable to see that kind of movement she would only hear it so i hope that when i share part of it at some point it will be able to be heard as well right and, and what made you what made you choose um this character to write uh, about and and this who she is and all her qualities it was funny. Originally, Lily came from, I had an exercise I was doing with students in class where I made them watch a scene from the film uh, where a woman is speaking, having a fight with, she's seen the film with no sound. And she's having an argument with her partner who is behind her and it's filmed through a, a fish tank. Um, and the actress actually was in some other series I was watching at the same time and had gone missing. And so this book opens with that sense of Lily had gone missing. Um, and the actor's name is Lily too. Um, so, so that's where Lily came from. It was very accidental. And then she grew out of that and went, you know, for me from being a Lily to really 
being some embodiment in some ways, uh, there, there are things about Lilith and the history of Lilith that, that come through and inform, but not only Lilith, but other female mythological characters echo um, women that have somehow been been unable, been some power of theirs has been removed from them or attempted to be removed from them. In the case of Lilith, of course, the thing is that she couldn't be controlled by by Adam. And so, you know, that was the problem, right? The problem is that being able or not being able to control that that woman. That's right. We have we have almost a Lilith theme with Angel House Press because um, we have an, another uh, another poet, uh, Sean Braun, who published, um, I published uh, his uh, story of Lilith around the, just just a little bit around the same time as your book. I was know. Out. I remember I, seeing that and, I, and reading it yeah. and thinking how exciting that was. I felt like we had a, a little vibe too. I've also written myself about Eve. I, I, a friend and I, Sandra Ridley, have made a, a, written a collaboration called Eve, A Mere Roar. And then I wrote Eve in the Garden of Armageddon. So that's sort of a fascinating. All those things are fascinating to me. That yeah. early women, uh, you know, characters and things like that. That somehow defines still how women are seen or still how women reflect on themselves and the female body. Oh yeah. Well, I, I had a terrible, this is a tangent, and this is what happens uh, on the podcast, we go into these tangents, So, but uh, <laughs> years ago, I was I was still very, I was like in my early 20s, or no, maybe I was even 18 or 19, and my then boyfriend and I went to a wedding, and uh, the, the priest actually told a joke, it was terrible, he's, I'm not even going to repeat it, but basically it was about, about Eve, about woman being a, a, a pain in, in man's side since, you know, the rib was removed. I, I said, I, I felt like walk, I wanted to just walk out there. And I said, if that had been our wedding, I wouldn't have stopped the whole thing and said, that man cannot marry us. Like he's not, <laughs> he's, he's a sexist jerk. I don't want anything to do with it. So uh, yeah, that's sort of what comes up with, with those. But Lilith, on the other hand, has a more, um, she, uh, she, the, the, the myth is more of a disobedient. She didn't obey. Mm -hmm. So that's, I love that. I love that character. And of course, I think of the character from Frasier, right? The, uh, the uh, TV show, who also is uh, formidable as well as an interesting character. So it's it has a lot of great uh, uh, associations for me. I also love the idea of a novel in fragments. First of all, I love fragments of, of any, both, phys both fit physical shards and actual fragments of text. So whatever, whatever, that's sort of interesting. Right away, I'm already drawn in by, by the title. And then the cover is so beautifully designed by Dylan Harris. And I'm, gonna, I'm also going to put Dylan's uh, site up as well. I was looking through it. Can you talk about the cover and how it came about and, and any choice? Did you have choice in the selection of the cover art and design? It's just gorgeous, this cover. You know, it was great. I, you know that H.R. Hegenauer um, is the person, I hope I pronounced her name correctly. I hope she'll be okay with that. Um, she's the one who did the book design for me and I had sent her some images by Dylan. I like these um, photos. The original photo, which if you add the link, um, you can see that he did a lot of photos of, of water, but which had reflections of different colored buildings and then he stewed it. So they really look like paintings. Yeah. And she sent some proposals back to me, including a very standard one where we could really see the photo. And then she said, I hope the, the artist won't be upset, but what about this? And she sent it back fragmented, right? Cut up. And Dylan was, was thrilled, actually. He said that was a lot of fun for him. He said, as long as, you know, somewhere there's this, you know, to know that that was not the original artwork, but that the work had been played with. Um, he, he was very open to that. And I, I was really pleased with it. And I think it, it, it worked well. Um, it also kind of looks like a, a kind of letter, like in some sort of yes. coded way. And, and letters and vocabularies and, and written language are a big part of the text. So I think that she made a, an excellent choice um, in, in what she did on the page with, with that cover. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And it's good that you worked in collaboration as well and that your designer was also, the, the original artist was also involved and that's that's great. Yeah, and I, I was gonna I was gonna mention her too. The whole design of the book, H.R. Hegnauer, the whole design of the book is quite spacious and beautiful. The size is a little larger than most trade poetry books, and it gives the space the text the space it needs to breathe. And um, what was your experiences uh, like working with H.R. Um, Hegnauer, the designer? So it was wonderful. I was I was quite surprised by her ability to get onto the, the page. Um, the work the work is very hard to set on the page. I'd actually um, been in touch with a, a publisher at one point who just said, "I think this is going to be a big pain to put together. I would not ever want to have to deal with the mise en page." And and there was a lot of dialogue as we went through final corrections, but it 
it, she did this amazing job. And as far as the book size goes, she also had a voice in that. Um, Corrupt Press, um, run by Dylan, who I had selected the photo by. I had actually liked other covers I'd seen, which had used his photos, so I had asked to go see his site and, and use them. He said there are some options for the press, and he sent us a couple different size options. Um, and HR proposed a few different ways of looking at it, and, and we went with this. And um, it, it does give the text a sort of necessary yeah. horizontal space, as, and you know, because. Um, the difference is really the horizontal space more than the vertical space of yeah. the page for the regular trade paper book. Um, it's not huge. It's not. It's not no. overly large either. Um, it's not a coffee big. table book. <laughs> yeah, it's not a coffee table book. It's not a giant one of those. Um, which you know, I've seen poetry books that go massive. Um, it, it's totally not that, but it it has a little bit extra width, which allows for the longer lines and moments. Um, yeah. But she did a great job of setting also sometimes when there would still be questions about a line being too long, um, she would come back with proposals. She didn't just say, oh, I can't do this. What do you want me to do? She would say, here, these are my ideas. And um, it was really wonderful. I would suggest to anyone to work with her. Um, she does beautiful work and, and she also does websites for authors. I think those websites, she's a sample on her site, are just great. She just really does great work. Well, I've got a link to her as well in the in the in the notes. Hopefully, if I I always say that, and then I, I have trouble sometimes remembering to put all these things in when I when I write the notes because I do it. I basically type everything in as I'm listening to the episode again. Yeah, I, but the um, sometimes because I mean sometimes in the in the text too that there's some lines that are upside down. You've got a piece of wall paper with text on. You know, so there's a lot of different things going on. That yeah, the quality of the image, I kind of lost my original image. And she's like, we've got to do something to get that quality up. So, you know, she, she worked really well in, in helping overcome, like, the problems of a poet who doesn't pay attention to these issues. Yeah, well, that's it. I'm, I, I'm, I wear both hats, so I kind of experience both of those things. I know, I know what it's like. <laughs> uh, so for um, both this and, and that which I touch, um, are written as long poems, poem series. What is it about the long poem or poem series that you engage with or relate to? And I write a lot of long poems and poem series, so I'm always happy to find a kindred long poem, poem series person. <laughs> it's funny that, you know, I find when I, I, I do still say, oh, cut, you know, as revision, I'm always saying, you know, condense this, condense this. But I'm also finding all the time that as I'm condensing, I'm adding. And I'm finding even I, I suggest to anyone that says, oh, can you look at this? Can you look at that? I frequently will say, what about building more here? Um, and often it's not it's it's just not been, I think, the habit of people in workshops to say build more um, and a lot more. Go, you know, go in there. But the long poem has opened up that possibility, expanded that um, it can go in different directions. One of the particularities for me with Lilith was was also that there are various permutations of this book in different publications that as I went through like sending pieces off to magazines, sometimes the same page might appear, but in totally different order and surrounded in totally like, like, you know, cards. Um, and that I, I, I had such a hard time allowing it to find a final form in the book because I liked that malleability um, and that constant, you know, ability to move. Um, and the long poem and, and a series poem allows for that. It opens that up. Um, it allows you to take something and, as you said earlier, we kind of digress when we have these interviews and come back. It allows you to digress and come back um, yeah. in, in a way that I think is is something that I relate to um, very well. A poem series, which is really much more like shelf break, there's something about the poems each also look very much similar, but within that same space, I'm doing something different with, with the engagement with language. Um, and I, I think that slowly as, as the book moves, there's a there's a sense of you know seeing that or experiencing that as well as the actual like other reading experiences I'm hoping someone will have um, with them. Right. So that's you know but it, it allows in this case in Lilith's case it's also that there is a kind of there's not a standard narrative in the sense of plot novel but there is there is something there is a sort of plot kind of drive behind something maybe yeah. and I keep saying something because I don't think. I don't think it's something totally tangible, but I hope that it's something that, that propulses a kind of movement and that movement like bing and bangs all over the place um, through the fragments and through the, the different series and the different moments in, in the book. There's a, um, a the Canadian uh, poet, oh, well, writer, um, well, um, 
deceased um, writer Robert Croach used to talk about the poetics of delay for mm. the for the long poem, which is something I I really relate to, and I think that happens in Lilith too. Like as you're kind of learning more about her, but then things get other things happen, you know, other, other, you, you go elsewhere for a while. So yeah, but it does accumulate. I mean, that's, that's something I, and, and this is the kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is anchoring the long poem. So yeah, I, uh, so I, I wrote this, I would say Lilith with its upside down text combination of English and French crossing out words and use of space isn't a traditional narrative in that all of its poems don't start on the left-hand side. There's no rigid adherence to a specific time and place. I found a lot of critique of working outside that sort of traditional, more like left-hand side, uh, everything in a sort of a cohesive uh, or, or a traditional order and uh, ending with a big finish, that sort of thing. I find that it's very hard. To, there's a lot of critique of that, at least here in Canada. Poems that are praised are often one-off poems with a defined and clear organizational structure and a very linear, linear and often storytelling approach. What are some of the challenges you face in working outside such mainstream literary forms. You know, it, it's interesting, you said the one page that can be, you know, it can't be excerpted in the same way as yeah. a one page poem and that, that you could say, here it is and it, it here's this little gem, you know, and I think of, you know, authors that I love, you know, poems like yeah. traditional poems by, you know, way back when, you know, John Donne, Emily Dickinson, Jared yeah. Manley Hopkins, Robert Frost even, um, that are these little gems. Um, but, you know, the, the, the series poem or poem in fragments, doesn't lend itself to that same sort of encapsulation. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that there are little moments that, that speak out and float. Um, and I hope that, you know, even if they're not easily excerpted in a sense that feels compactly um, cohesive, I hope that they will they will open out. I, I love Lynn Hagelian's, you know, going back already in time, this is from the 90s, I think, her, her essay, um, Rejection of Closure. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of that because, you know, I, I do like the idea of that opening out. And I think that, that I, that I desire that. And there's another part of me that still has a very traditional wanting to close off. Um, so I, I think that, you know, those are, those are in, in combat for me um, in the, in the works that I write and in various different works. It, it's interesting listening to what you said about this work, which moves off of the margin in a lot of ways. I felt a need for that. It's not like, I moved it off the margin to be fun or playful or even out of just simple visuality. But it is a, a book driven by sound um, and breath. And it, it the breath does not start in a flat same place. And it, it starts in different moments and different places. But also there are gaps in the story. There are gaps in the desire behind Lily that I hope that the page imitates or contributes to. Whereas in Shelf Break, I can say Shelf Break, the poems that are that are in this new manuscript I'm working on, they are all visually the same. They are all left blind. There are five right. poems in the book, and the other poems are sectioned poems. They're five to section section, five to seven sections per poem. And they look very concise, and yet they're still resisting something about that, <laughs> that, you know, that left mark. They're still like resisting it, but they look like they're giving a good, you know, facade of being that kind of poem, but they're not that kind of. Um, really playing with that tension, which is fun, which is interesting too. Yeah, yeah. I, I like poems that don't just give me the whole story, that make yeah. me work for it. I'm a fan of Anne Carson because yeah. there's much more that I don't know after reading her again and again and again than I did know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, whereas I've had I've had students in reading Anne Carson with them who say, "Oh, but Madame, I just want to know." what it means yeah. um, you know, yeah. and, and there's a very different desire there's some people that, that you need that the poetry is there to reassure to reiterate and that is wonderful and we need poetry that does that but poetry can also question and and um and and delve into deeper inquiry and confuse and confound and and speak to that and open that up and, and i guess you know that's form for me is is part yeah. of that opening up to inquiry, the inquiry of the page itself. What is a book? Um, what is the page? How does it function in, in relationship to the presence of text? And and yeah, I, and how do you anchor the text to me? This is something I struggle with because I write I write 60 page poems, you know, or whatever, like, you know, I write this. And I mean, I, for, for this one, I actually ended up um, uh, basically turning it into, rather than one long poem, I ended up parsing it down into, and I sort of regret it in a way, but it, it's out now. So we'll see what happens, but it's not out publication wise, but anyway, but anyway, how do you anchor the text 
to make it readable for an audience or do you? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know that I think about audience. Um, mm -hmm. It was funny, the very first time when I was much younger and I was asked, and I thought I was prepared to be asked any questions about some poems that I turned into yeah. these teachers. The first question they asked was me about a reader and I, I never thought about a reader. Like I just didn't think about a reader. Um, but I think as I've grown older and matured in my reflections, I've realized that, well, I guess I'm presuming that reader, and I know that's very selfish to say, is me. Yeah. As in, you know, I'm not going to try and make something easier because I think a reader is not going to get something. And I'm not going to try to make something harder to, like, seem smarter than someone else. You yeah. know, so so I guess I'm, I'm trying to get it. If I try to hear the poem and what it says to me, and I'm hoping that if I hear that, um, it will be heard if I succeed in that on some level, that I hope that for other readers that experience will will be a successful experience too, that they will find that um, relationship. Um, but there are people that just say, wow, I'm totally lost. And my mom still says, where's the rhyme? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, but and that's why there's there's a diversity of, of poetry out there. And, and I love to read widely. I love to read everywhere from like, you know, Marilyn Hacker to Lynn Hedgenian. Sure. Um, it's, it's great that there's this like expansiveness of practice um, out there. Yeah. I think there's a lot of anchors in this book, actually. I think there's the sound anchor. I mean, that there's the work that you do with sound, alliteration, and, and also the vowel stuff you do as well. There's also the imagery, all of, I mean, the sense stuff. I mean, just beautiful there. I think the, the, the anchors, for me, an anchor doesn't have to, like, I like the idea of anchoring a text that is making something that people can follow through to sort of help them want to turn the page. One thing that happens to me is I, I write for my, my, I think of myself as, as the first reader too. And, but I say, like, I notice sometimes I'll, I'll, if I'm bored, like myself, then I have to do something to, to make it more interesting for me. So, but sometimes that's doing things like taking a bunch of stuff and just remixing it and, and until it, until it, you know, yield something that that has some interest to me or some some it's it resonates for me in some way or with whatever I'm doing. So you're, you're making me think as you say anchor, I, I wasn't necessarily following that in that same way as I am now. Yeah. It makes me think about one of the things I love, one of the visual artists I love is Robert Rauschenberg. And, and one of the things I often say when I talk about like his work is, you know, here are these collage pieces, but and in the sense of anchoring, there are certain elements that repeat that come back that we feel like we come back some, we hit them again, like a refrain, like like a sound that's a rhyme that, yeah. that makes us go ah. And and I do think, yes, I do think that that's a big part of the writing and that it moves through certain sound groupings. In this case, there's whole moments of kind of similar similar questionings that return and, and return again and exactly. are recontextualized that I hope are kinds of, yeah, they're grounding moments. Exactly. Um, that hold us into a space of, in this case, you know, Lilith plot, um, as it were. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, grounding moments. I really like that. I'll, I'll, that'll help me actually with my, I want those grounding moments when I'm, when I'm writing these things too. So that's good. Now I notice I have, I have the number five for a lot of questions here. So number five becomes like three or four questions. I, I don't know what happened there. I must've dreamed off for a second, but the next number five says, do you think the fragment is a feminist technique, which is an interesting and odd question, but let, let's see where we go with that. <laughs> I think that I've come to think of it that way, but just, you know, I mean, I look at, you know, Susan Howes, my Emily Dickinson's, yeah. and people speaking of women in the stutter, um, the sort of traditional sense of that. I, I think that there's something that women have felt more open to in incompletion, but I think that also excludes, I mean, a lot of men that I like to read are working very much in the fragment in very rich ways. I think of the work of Craig Santos Perez, which I just love and admire and the way that moves through fragment between languages and gap, um, which is as much, you know, a, a male technique as a female technique. But, but there are a lot of women, I think, yes, who have put the fragment into practice and explored the fragment in really rich ways. Um, since maybe, you know, like the 1940s and 1950s to now. Um, yeah. So maybe we come to think of the fragment as a female technique because so many women have really explored and, and richly delved into it um, while, you know, some of their male counterparts were exploring other techniques. Um, but I wouldn't give it just to us or, you know, or, like to, like or say, no, no, guys, not for you. Um, we, yeah, but, and it could be a feminist technique and still be by a man. But, but, but for, for Lilith, I mean, it is a book with a female character, which is yeah. dealing with, 
this female who's trying to to see the self or define the self. Yeah. And so the fragment is this is an unresolved, right? It's a gap. Um, it's a, a sense of unwholeness. Um, and and she's seeking to not just be or to feel not necessarily to not just be a fragment, but rather to feel the completion of being a fragment in like a, you know a cosmos of many many particles and movements. You know the the sense of being a whole, even if one is a part, maybe, um, you know, is part of that. Right. Yeah, and I was thinking too about, uh, well, uh, early fragment fragment uh, um, that I, I was introduced to was through Ann Carson's If Not Winter, uh, the Sappho uh, fragments. And that idea yeah. was quite cool because she it was she was unearthing these, you know, like she was extracting, yeah. you know, they were found, little pieces of found. And I love like, for instance, just the square brackets with just like nothing inside, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I thought I, I do, there's something about the idea of sort of um, bringing back into life something that people didn't know about, you know, and especially stuff to do with women, you know, like that's a lot of erasure and a lot of not yeah. caring about. So I feel like the fragment is almost these little torn bits of even the wallpaper, the little scrap of wallpaper in your book, it, that had a very fragmentary feel, right? Just to have that little piece of peeled wallpaper with the text on it, like it, uh, it was a yeah. fragment too, you know? Yeah, and the book opens in a, in a space that, that is defined by sort of ornateness that it relates to kind of like, I know this is another sort of stereotype, but the way that we give, you know, the practices of, as you said, wallpaper, of, of you know, sewing, of embroidering, yeah. of, you know, I live in the city of Mulhouse, which is known for what's called the impression sur so printing on, on fabric, which is right next to the city that has the, you know, wallpaper museum in Rixheim, which, um, you know, which is where this actually is, you know, it sort of came out of, you know, reflecting on my arrival in, in Luz, sort of looking at, you know, these pieces came also from that as much as from sort of the lowest story. But yeah, the female that that is relegated to the corner of embroidering, relegated to the darkness where they're, you know, held away, or, you know, who, you know, we know that the fragments of Sappho are literally fragments because they are yeah. what remain. Um, but we also know so many women don't remain in the history books, didn't get voiced, um, didn't get, you know, also the education to write in the same way and thus their stories don't exist. Um, so certainly, yes, the fragment has a, a representation or a representation of the history of women is, is certainly, I think, something that we could, you know, relegate to the realm of, um, of you know, a, a female practice or reflective of, of female experience. And on, on a similar note, the Canadian writer and visual poet, Danny Spinoza, who's, who's a great, uh, she's wonderful, she's been on the show as well, she's spoken about the citation as a feminist practice. And in Lilith, you incorporate quotations from works of art and from other writers, especially women writers or works about women. I always find this exciting as a reader. I will often stop and look up a work I've never heard of before. What can you say about your act of citation in Lilith and elsewhere? I say and elsewhere because there's other places, including Afterlife, where you've, where you've done yeah. that. So, yeah. You know, I, I was feeling troubled by what, what holds all the different kinds of writing I've done together. And this young, very young woman this summer was, had read something by me and a bunch of different things. And she said, you're always quoting other people. You're always in dialogue with, you know, writers from the past. And, you know, it was like it took this person and never seen my work to kind of just say immediately, like, this was so obvious to her, um, making me aware suddenly that, yeah, there. The, the quoting is there because I think I'm, I'm always, maybe I'm always reaching out. Maybe I, I need that otherness. So, you know, we live in COVID times now, so we're really experiencing that on a whole new level. Yeah. But I think perhaps, you know, I mean, we all as writers I and mean, writers, writing is a very private practice. You know, we don't, you know, stand in a studio, um, you know, with a bunch of other people to do it. We have to find our own minds, our own sound. And maybe that said, there's, there's still a, a, a historical dialogue that that one is involved in one is I find that when I'm writing I'm often reading a lot there's a deep you know merging if I stop reading I'm stop writing and vice you know if I stop writing I'm stop reading seeing you kind of you know the, the the two go hand in hand and the language of others is is important to me it's not just that I'm reading for like what did this person say and what did they think etc but something about how that person like found the language how they word that language 
awakens something in me. So a lot of the quotations that appear in this book, like there's a little Alice Notley moment, because they really are moments that are linguistically also opening something up that, that came into and invited and invited something in that text at that moment. Um, but it's also the question of, I mean, if Lily's lost her sight, there's that question of reading in Braille, not reading, that, that ability to not read if you've lost your sight, if you don't know Braille, right? That, that sort of incapacity to see language and the significance of that, that, that is behind also perhaps some of the intertextuality. But I think a lot of, a lot of my work is dialogic. It, it seeks to be in conversation with a lot of people I can't go hang out with. Yeah. If you were to have a dinner party with so, so many people, that, that old uh, meme that, or whatever that is. The yeah, yeah. And also, that which I touch has no name. You're uh, in, I mean, you, you respond to uh, in various ways to the uh, Aaron Murray's The Frame of the Book, too. So oh, yes. It's a, a lot. A different. lot. I don't oh, own that book. I was shocked. It's, <laughs> oh, it's such an amazing book. It's such an amazing book. I had actually come through, a lot of people do, you know, come through a kind of like cancer scare, do you, don't you have it? You know, I did not, it was great. Um, but but it was a long period. It took them quite a while to be sure that it was a no. Um, and during that time, I was, I was kind of mad at myself afterwards because I didn't write. Um, and so it, there was a moment of slow returning to writing and it came through reading the frame of the book, um, which is her book, which is amazing. Um, and the sort of return to writing came out of an ability to sort of speak back to different moments, totally out of order as I, as I started to do that um, and to write the poems that some of the poems that became um, two of the four sections and that which I hold um, has no name, that which I touch has no name. Um, the other section, uh, there also is a lot of dialogue with visual artists, Yeah, um, but also the section that Angel House Press um, published as a chapbook um, about Dibutan. That was um, you know, obviously, I love that. <laughs> yeah, credited with the first um, artwork, but whose work actually came to me through someone embroidering, like, you know, the idea of embroidering the Dibutan instead of doing a chalk form of the body that's left. Um, Veronique Arnaud, a French artist, had actually embroidered these bodies on large white fabric. So again, that question of female embroidery and the absented body, and they're kind of shrouds in a way, and they're kind of emerging phantoms. Um, and so that, I was invited to do some writing and perform that writing in the, the museum. And that's where the origin of that large text that became eventually the chapbook and sort of questions that erasure of women yeah. um, and, and that presence of women that, you know, people don't know the name Djibouti frequently and yet, know. You know, they know all the ramifications of it. Yeah, I mean, I never heard of it until I read, I read your chapbook and I was enchanted by that, you know, and, and uh, that captivated me right away. So yeah, that's good. I, and then her name, Di Butad, is of Butadis, which is the father, right? So she doesn't even, you know, have her own name. Although someone after a reading said, I looked it up, they actually know what her name was. So some historian somewhere did find her. But as you, as we said earlier, she'd been erased bracketed out of history right that's it so it's good that you uh you know that that was another good thing you did because now hopefully people will you know 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 her name and look her up and then find out more or what little there is to find out for the, yeah <laughs> uh, the other thing is is lilith made me uh think of other works by women that include some form of enclosure or imprisonment or in some instance commitment to mental hospitals i don't know if you know sandra ridley who's a dear friend of mine but anyway she uh, she's an ottawa poet she's got a book called post apothecary that's really wonderful and uh another canadian susan elmsley i nadia and other poems about andre breton's uh, Nadia, and much of the book explores the tension between the ca character's attempt at wildness, it seems to me, and unbridled creativity and the pressure to conform or to be enclosed. Uh, and what can you say about that in the book and in general? In general, I love those in general little add-ons. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there you, you kind of already said everything and I, and I like you know, the references you gave me. I, I didn't, I don't, I know the apothecary one, but I don't know the other book and we'll have I'll to- put them, I'll, I'll put that. them up in the show notes so we can- yeah. I was thinking as you were speaking of also that section Anna O in, in whose book is that? Is that Carson as well? Which um, one? There's a section called Anna O. It is a Carson. It's in a Carson okay. book, right? Anna O, um, which again also deals with that, the Freud's patient. Is that, is that Carson? Is that, oh my God, I'm going to not know. I'm going to not know, guys. We're going to have to look it up now. I, and I I'm see it on the page, but, but again, which deals with that idea of, of, yeah, the female that, that you know, 
that the female treated also the women women were also treated as being hysterical for just speaking their minds for sharing their opinions um certainly i think that's that's there and and in the case of of lilith who's not speaking she's actually doing the reverse um that's being treated as hysterical behavior she's kind of acting like a bit of a helen keller in a way um and you know not doing what society expects of you right yeah Um, therefore insane you know wild creative whatever um yeah certainly there's there's that but i think that there are very um that i think a lot of women have suffered from mental illness and have gone through a lot without also ever being given sort of treatment it's been you know they've just been treated as uncontrollable and therefore you know no like positive manners of trying to you know help them find balance in some way and have happened and certainly that's i think important to me and to people i know and have experienced or you know i've been friends with um so i don't know if that's part of lilith but you know it's certainly in her. There's something about her energy that's, you know, that's that's been left outside of, of the help she needs to transition through this yeah. moment. Um, yeah. And I think there's an empowerment. I hope there's an empowerment of her near the end of the book. There's a moment where he actually falls and she catches him. And that right. moment for me felt, I almost edited that out of the book. But that moment actually, I realized, was a clear moment of, she catches him falling, you know, she can't see him, but she catches him falling. And that's a moment of empowerment, right? Yeah, you know, right. Of, of the reverse support. She can support him. She can save him. She can, you know, even though it's a little gesture in a tiny moment, but, you know, it moves on. I found myself um, like like a, a novel. I, I found my or, a short, or I found myself caring for the character. You know, I, I I had compassion and I was interested in her. So you did a really great job of establishing that. And in that's not easy to do in a in in this form. So uh, that was that was uh, impressive Thank too. You. Uh, now, again, we were talking about uh, the difficulties of exerting, uh, uh, and, this, and this is the. I'd like uh, to ask you if you'd be willing to read a couple, a few pages from um, a section of the book. So, I, what I picked out was um, pages thirty and thirty-one from Enclosure One, and and I thought from there we could talk more in depth about it. Possibly, it depends on. I haven't had any coffee today, so my in-depth may be an issue. But, uh, but I, I thought we could talk about it after you read it, and maybe we could talk more about the book in general. If that's okay with you. That's great. And, and I think that these two pages go well with things that we've been talking about. Yeah. So the one, um, I, I will say before reading this, the only thing yeah. I'll say is that one, as you said earlier, well, one of them is kind of in 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 a letter form. There are two voices. Um, so I'll do my best to do whatever I'm doing. <laughs> he is informed, informs her. If this continues, another, they, those in the white, will have to take her coat away those in steel cells, because in voice down corridor group, though she cannot see, Paul, hollow, haranguing, and there is no others unlike her speaking out, reason for her, and canteens, and bedtime, and bars on, new silence, window. Besides, she shrugs, the doctor tells him, he tells her, informs flatly, she appears to think, he cannot bear to let her, she's speaking, go on. And her fists are coated with mustard yellow, pollen in her eyes, reddening in the sharp spark set of heated sun at her back or the woods, somber shading her called forward. He called her forward. She explains the call for the body located in stone. The bones became this come, Narcissus, out to she, Echo, she, Lily, out in the orange of day blooming at the side of hill, mocking gallop or guffaw. Question me, she repeated, recalled a pond or murky sulfur at the rim catching fire, the torch or her wind salted. He comes near, more followed in the hollowed out scabrous flight, a raven, a red-winged blackbird, a crow bitterly crowding onto her porch light, like bats at her lips running right around her step, out to answer. When you say I cannot hear, Lily states, what I you say you I cannot bear. Why come for me to let the body fall against the far out cliff where this domestication questioned, repeated, heated in the woods? The more she swallowed, herded, chased, caught herself, other, that, this body bloodied at the balustrade, body she embodied in the state of things printed hands on the unlit wall encasing, in case of her urgency, break glass, say, I cannot, her. 
Thank you. That was that was great. You can really hear the sound coming out too when you like the sound. The there's a, definitely a sound rep repetition and just it's 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 a lot. To, sometimes I have a tendency to read work out loud of other people's too to get to get that side of things too. And I really really hear it when you read. It was interesting too with having the second voice like that and having you read it aloud. It really emphasized it more. I was thinking too about um, what you said in. Um, um, I guess the little assay part of your other, your other, that which I touch has no name, you were talking about the dialogue with the self and the body. And that's what I saw here is I saw some of that uh, sort of self-talk in a way. So that's, uh, that's really appealing as well. And uh, one thing in the form on the left, the, the, the first part on the left-hand side is kind of, is, is the, as the left, the page thirty is is basically there's there's text on the left and then on the right hand side it, that's where the the second voice appears and it's not like that but it's sort of like it's an altering of of the text one side to and then the next is the lower and then on the right hand side it's all one block so uh, that was an interesting uh, choice now how do you how do you make those decisions do you do, you, do they just come that's how they are or do you have any th thoughts in mind when you well a lot of these actually when I initially wrote them they they looked in some way, shape, or form, yeah. kind of like they looked eventually. Um, meaning, I handwrite my poetry, so mm -hmm. they were actually written in notebooks in yes. ways that that moved in this way. That's not always the case for some of my work. Some of my work is just you know it's randomly lined or not lined, but these were already they were already coming in movements um, in, in that way. Um, to but that said, this these two pages like thirty thirty one they're both in long, they're long. Yeah. So even though it's a block on the right side, they're, they're equidistant, they're equal length almost. Yeah, vertically. Um, yeah. And, and in the end, um, as I ordered the book, there were a lot of decisions that, that worked with that, worked with how did one page speak to another. Here, it was also the movement between the two voices on the left that were kind of spaced out. And I have this feeling of like this impatience and a breathlessness of, of yeah. the life. So I think there was also a feeling of exploring two kinds of breath breath and interruption on the left and a staccato and on the right a kind of rushing over inability to like stumbling clumsiness there are a lot of parentheses in the block on the right too though yeah. which indicate a kind of instead of a literally sitting on the right side of the page um second sound a kind of you know a depth of erasure of depth of what could be said differently in some other way um could be read differently um um, read in whispers or not whispers. Um, I read them all very much the same tone, but but could invite other other ways to play with it that I think I mentally have played with. Um, there are some pages later in the book which very rarely. I mean, it's it's a book that does visually move a bit, but it isn't like I'm not using giant topography. I'm not using a lot of um, visual things on the page. There are a couple moments where there's like a line or something. Um, there's one where also I use slightly different sized font. I use like a little you know superscript but yeah. I don't I generally the whole book is all in one font um, which is you know as as opposed to I, I think of you know Jane Augustine's visual like you know poetry where she's playing all over the place with different fonts and things um, right that's okay. good I was gonna say too like like so this is something that you um that is throughout the book, like you've got hall, hollow, haranguing. It's like almost like an associative sound thing going on. I, and I really, that was really fun too, to, to uh, listen to, but also to just read, because it felt almost like it wasn't free association, but you know, it felt like accumulatory and incantatory in a way too. So that was fun uh, to I see. I think even as I write, it's sound that draws me forward. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Me too. A lot of the times that's, I find like um, I'll be uh, walking along the street or something and some little combination of words will, or images, but especially words will just kind of be like, that's like, I really, I heard one time on the radio, the theory of tectonic plates. And I went, yes. And I, I still love that. I still, I haven't, I think it's in various poems in various ways. I just like, it, it has a shape to it, a kind of a nice curve, right. To, uh, to it, but there, there's that as well. Yeah. I, I, um, what else was I can? One thing I noticed too in here, although although here there's a she and a he uh, throughout the book, uh, Lily is mentioned by name and the he is not mentioned by name. So I thought that was an interesting, uh, another interesting thing as well. Uh, the other thing too uh, here, uh, you talk about Narcissus, Echo, 
as well. And you've talked about them in other parts of the book as well. So you brought in that myth myth as well into the into this story, which I thought was was a neat, uh, neat thing. I think well. Echo came up and, and actually just came up in something else I, I was working on this week to me. This this idea of the person, the woman that does not have her own voice, that can only be heard because she reflects the voice of another um, was very important, I think, in this book to the, you know, the sort of frustration of that um, and the frustration within Lily um, and that interchangeability and invisibility. Um, yeah. You know, Lily can't see the world, but it's also, she cannot be seen. Um, you know, she cannot, yeah, be known how she wants to, but you know, that's, that's I think, that Echo also, you know, she cannot be heard, but she wants to be heard. Is, is requiring and it's almost like a crippling thing to require the male right in this case narcissus right yeah um, to require the other <laughs> yeah that's right uh, yeah it, it, it was one of the things i loved about the book actually this this sort of um pointing out of the invisibility like this is was clear you know that that uh the, in the erasure and invisibility or or so that was that was great uh I found it interesting. Oh yes, my my my. Unfortunately, my computer is going to be making weird little sounds like that. This is, someone added something to the Dropbox. Yay! We need to know that. I don't know why. Uh, so on the so on the left hand side, in a lot of ways, the, the those page that the the text there is fairly sparse. There's not a lot of um, um, color, and there we have steel cells. We have white. And then on the right, it, 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 we have canteen on the left, canteens, bedtimes, bars. On the right hand side, we get into full, sen a, a full sort of sensual experience. We have um, fists are coated with mustard yellow pollen, and then her eyes reddening in the sharp sparks. Like, there's just so much, so much um, uh, sense play in the in, in imagery in, in that side. It was really interesting that I noticed that and, and I w one of the reasons I picked this is because of all the different uh, images and the senses in in the, on the right hand side but I was just when you were reading I, I thought it was a good contrast between the sparsity of, of the he is informed and then here she goes off with her mustard yellow pollen and, and you know it just it felt like a, a, a juxtaposition between the wildness and the containment so that was really neat as well. Thanks. Thanks. Do you, um, I, it's something I, I keep asking writers, this, even though I have no answer for this myself, do you have a way in which you engage with um, the senses somehow? Like, do you, do you, do you have ways in which you do that? Cause I, it's sometimes I feel like I'm in my head so much when I write that it's actually hard for me to think of things like this, like mustard yellow pollen, which I just love by the way, <laughs> keep, keep uh, and you have a mustard uh, yellow coat in the other one, in the other, in the other book. So I thought that was interesting. I must have had a thing, I must have had a thing with yellow. Yeah. Someone said to me once, yellow doesn't show up in poem. And maybe I, I that stuck in my brain. But you've got um, like murky sulfur at the rim catching a lot of yellow there. <laughs> oh my God. It, it's beautiful. Like there's just so much in here that, I mean, I just, uh, for me to do that, it, I have to like go through a, a big process of uh, sifting through um, adjectives and, and senses and just the whole, I have to keep notebooks to get to this point. Well, I, not that I get to this point because this is amazing. But <laughs> this book was revised a lot. Um, it, it, yeah. it was revised over a long period of time and, and certainly some of the density and, and some of the, you know, I don't know whether, I don't know how many of those words were originally there. I, do have a, a kind of a gazillion drafts um but as far as like you asked the question of how what was it how do i relate to the senses well, how, how do, do you relate? how do you how do you get them down on paper i guess is how do you come up with them like wh what's your process for you know like, i mean you're very involved in art too so you you that, that yeah, is I, I'm, I'm i'm very visual and, yeah. and then i'm not very musical as in listening to music but i think that's part of that i want to I think without realizing, and I'm, I'm constantly wanting to sort of make my own music, um, you know, um, in, in the sense of, you know, poetry as song in that old, old traditional sense on some level, um, that, that I, I'm, I'm very excited by poetry that has sound in it, that is, that is you know, yeah. doing something. Um, though not, the, you know, I'm not doing that traditional, like, you know, rhymed and metered, you know, even beat. There's something uneven about the world for me. So, yeah. you know, though the evenness can be quite lovely, it's non-natural to me, and I wouldn't want to write something that is non-natural in that way. But 
the senses, I think visual senses come to me more easily maybe than others just because I'm so attached to looking at the world and, and, and pushing at description. But as far as writing goes, I, I, I sit, often when I'm writing, I, I sit, I journal like to get rid of the guck in yeah. that is to liberate my brain from my brain. Um, all the things that get thought about, etc. Of course, there are times when I'm just, if you're trying to just concentrate on writing because you're forcing that to write, it's hard to get past the brain and get into a space that opens to, I don't know, where, where you feel a flow of something, a connection between yourself and the page or yourself and the world. Um, but I would say my relationship to the senses is, is a feeling in the moment of writing um, that starts to open up between myself and the world on whatever you know sensory level that is. Um, within Lilith, there are the five senses are actually consciously explored like you know the, the different sections that like retina which is exploring obviously yeah. the sense of sight prints which is exploring tactility and touch um frequency um redolent smell which is smell yeah fast um, each one of those was actually part of an exploration of actually trying to just do a poem which is exploring that one sense in, in some way shape or form um that that is, you know, which has to do with what senses we have, what senses we don't have. Um, so there I was actually like consciously eliminating or trying to eliminate certain senses in favor of others or focusing on. Um, and they were written sometimes in places that, that evoked those. Like Redolence um, was originally drafted when I was in the south of France. I was in a residency and, and we went to, you know, the original, you know, perfume makers. Um, and saw how they were making perfume, how flowers being encased in, in you know, different kinds of wasps. And that you know, gave way to, to redolence. Um, so mm -hmm. so there, there are different elements that bring out. Retina was, was originally written looking at uh, a painting by Kate Van Houten. I mean, we actually did, a, they, she published a little chapbook of that poem in French and English with then she did other images to go with it, which are little blue images. So also the focus on color in there is present. But I also thought about, I mean, the brain is part of the relationship. So what in retina, there is a removal, there's almost no pronoun use because the eye is the eye, right? Mm. Um, so, so throughout those, there are different ways that I've eliminated or used pronouns um, in, in somewhat different ways. And Lily then, comes through those as, you know, part of the voice behind these, you know, in some ways, but less so, I mean, she's less present, present in, for example, as you, uh, in a way, there's a kind of digression, right? Um, because she can't see, so that, that sense has been lost, the pronoun is absent, um, whereas the pronoun is heightened in some of the others of, because she she has that, that sense, that sense is still there in her world, it's still defining her. You know, there's a, there's a real, um, this part too, her voice has a, has a, does have a defiant uh, tone to it, right? It, it feels defiant. I think there's, there's something about using dialogue from like, you know, like not dialogue, but using, using her voice so directly that is very powerful in this too. So, uh, yeah. And yet she doesn't, she doesn't actually speak. And I thought about that a long time. I think I was reading something, a, a book by Rosemary Waldrop where yeah. at the end of her book, the, some, someone turned around and finally spoke. Um, and I, I, it made me think, I mean, I actually had a long like think about it and thought, oh, am I, you know, am I supposed to work on a section where, where Lily speaks? Um, <laughs> and, and in the end, I mean, I really was sure that I would write that. I was sure that was gonna be where this book was gonna go um, and never did. Um, in part, because I, I don't think I could, I, as you said, her voice is there, but it's also not there. And, and I don't know, I don't think I heard her voice as a clear spoken voice. I think it was, it was much more amorphous and thus, you know, contained in the mixture of other things than just sound. Oh, right, right. Is there anything else you want to say about, about, about those pages and, and in general about the book while we're... No, I guess, no. <laughs> um, I, I'm really happy to, to talk about it um, in this time. I, I, there's a relationship also, I will say yes, one thing, is a relationship to, between sleeping and waking. Okay. You know, there's, there's a relationship of con between consciousness and unconsciousness mm -hmm. that, that I think is important to me also in the book that's related to this idea of voice or not voice. When you're in a state of dream, 
theoretically, right, we're dreaming, so we wouldn't be sensing the world. And yet there's such a sense of richness in mm-hmm. dream of, of totality. Um, and I think, you know, there's a part laid on in the in this where I repeat twice, you know, Lily sleeps in a bed of books, nestling in piles growing higher around her blue room is in which she wakes to words in the white snowing sky. And that repeats twice on the page with, you know, up and down. And then there's a there's a little paragraph on the right hand side page. But that serves as like two pillars, kind of like which this other thing slides into and completes. And there's something I think in 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 sleep and wakeness, in consciousness, unconsciousness, in control and not control that, that you know, is is circling around in, in this text. And I hope um, maybe maybe we'll be, you know, explored again in, in something else that I write. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, as I said, well, I'll, I'll, we'll get to my little note of praise in, in a few minutes, but, but uh, because I have a lot, I, I loved reading the book anyway, and, and thank you very much for it. Um, thank so, you for spending the time to read the book so closely and to ask these questions, they're amazing. I always, I always feel like I don't, I always think I could go way further if I just spent more time and attention. So I just, uh, I could, I feel like I could, I could do a PhD thesis on everyone's work, you know, and just because it's so, so intriguing and so, and so resonant, but of course, I'm not doing that. (laughs) So I'm not, don't, I have other things I'm I'm doing. Do you have any upcoming, uh, even virtual readings or readings at all for, for, for any, for any of your work? Well, I work with, three other authors and we we usually write a book annually together and then we would have a big party like a brunch we make our own book and and we would sell the book at the cost of what we made and we've been working with you know different times and we usually do it in the spring but we didn't do it in the spring because of covid and finally we decided to do this in december so we're in the process of finishing that up and we will be actually we're trying to decide what form that book will take whether we'll do an ebook that people can download um, and have an online party, or whether we will still make a physical book, a book object. Um, so we are planning to do that, and we're planning to do that with also an actual book name maker named Kate Van Houten, um, mm-hmm. who did a little chapbook of one poem by each of us in these little formats, um, and where Kate would actually read those poems and those books, or write, read from them, or talk about them. So that, yeah. that we're planning on. And the second thing, I just did a collaborative, I'm big on collaboration this time. I guess solitude is is needing collaboration. This week, I've um, been working on a collaborative poem video with Cole Swinson, mm-hmm. Laura Mullen, and Elena Rivera. And we've just seen the rough cut today. Um, Laura's working on getting the credits, etc. cetera. But um, it's, it's a, a poem video, um, which responding to um, a Paris Lit Up's call for work about forgotten women artists and landscape. Wow. And so um, we've done a little something. And I'm really excited about it. I've I've not participated in something like this before. So it caused me to kind of um, work differently. It was fun. It was really fun. So I will definitely give you the link when we see if PLU takes it or whether someone else does. Um, Those are what are coming up. Those both sound exciting. I could talk to you about those things for a long time, too. That sounds great. I, I don't know. I feel like this is, we've already talked about, I, I have a question. How has the, the pandemic affected your writing and promotion of, of this book and your forthcoming book? You it, it's, you know, it's, it's delayed. As you saw, you were like, well, the bio says this book is out in 2020. It was supposed to be out in October. So right. it's coming out in the spring. Um, I've had a hard time. I, I would also say like some people are very good at like promoting, but it, you know, I feel like I'm alone and, and what's the point of letting people know this or that is happening? It's a very difficult time battling with that, I think, for all of us. Yeah. I did do a workshop um, for Weiss and I will probably get that a video, even though I did that in the spring, which was on sort of ways to get over the feeling that we're like in a holding pattern, like a, like a plane. Right. And it was a kind of writing class of sort of prompts on getting through the pandemic. I loved that I was writing a ton up until the moment when I gave that workshop, at which point, like, <laughs> Tons of people were me and said, this is great, I'm unblocked. And I thought, and I am stuck. Um, so I think like a lot of people, I've gone through phases of feeling very much too much, like I'm in a kind of purgatory and I'm just waiting to get out. Oh, yeah. I don't think that's a very good space to be in. Um, and so I think that's part of why collaboration has been a significant mode of, of keeping going. And um, taking, I, I would suggest, you know, I think a lot of people are doing this, taking online classes. I'm taking an yeah. introduction to 
astrophysics and cosmology. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> I can already tell you that kind of vocabulary is appearing in poems. That's um, interesting. Not that I necessarily have been understanding the profound things presented to me by the amazing scientists at Stanford University. Wow. But, you know. <laughs> That's great. Um, but I would say, you know, trying to carve out a space where you still talk to yourself, even if you feel like a broken record, like reading the news is, you know, is, yeah. is a really important thing to, and I, and I, and I, you know, I guess in my little vaccine optimism here, um, <laughs> I, I hope that, you know, in a year or two, we're going to be able to sort of look back at this time. I have a feeling some writers going to be like, Oh, it was so great when I didn't have to say no to everybody and going to here and going to there. And right. I could just stay yeah. home all the time I wanted to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like, there's a lot of things that I have to spend more time at now. Like I've yes. never been on zoom until, until this, like I never even I've avoided anything like that until, you know, so, and I did a, a reading uh, just, a, was it last a week ago, Sunday, um, my first sort of as a feature on zoom. And I was standing so close to my screen, the top of my head was cut off, you know, so, which is fine. Who needs to see the top of my head anyway? It's not important. You know, you just do, do that. I, a strategy that my husband and I, I use for this time is, is the same we use for any kind of difficult time is we just adapt to the time we're in. We try not to pine for what was or what, or, or, or look forward to a time when this won't be. We just assume this is the way life is now and mm -hmm. we just adapt. So masks are just part of our everyday routine. Now the fear and anxiety over COVID and all the deaths and everything and, and say that is such a worry and, and it's hard to do that. But other than that, the rest of it is just um, living like that's the way we live and not... not. I, I think COVID has also invited a lot of reflection and therefore meditation I'm teaching creative writing class and decided to actually focus on meditation. But what it means is that I'm reading, like, you know, I'm looking at Hank Glazer's work, John High's work, you know, people who are, or have Zen practices, but also this started because of reading the meditations poems by Susan Schultz. Right. Um, and then having my students do meditations, I'm also doing them myself. Um, and, and that's great. You know, just kind of trying to carve out that being in the moment, but, but finding also the, the way to get rid of, as you said, all of the difficulty that's actually part of this moment yeah. to find, you know, little grains of, you know, just being able to hear the self that still is, right? The self that is still, I mean, breathing, right? The importance of breathing, the importance of breath to writing. It, it, you know, for a while I was very frustrated because every time I wrote anything, I found like it still felt like suddenly every word was impregnated with COVID in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. um, I can say I have, I'm very excited about having finally stumbled out of that. I've been writing uh, a series of poems using, I've got, I bought years ago at the Strand in New York City, two huge, beautiful volumes bound with gold embossing on the front of Da Vinci's writings. Um, wow. And I actually started working with those and some Kurt Schritter's writings on doing these kind of weird collage poems Ooh, and, and I needed to move out of myself so using collage methods but also writing through and in from my time and the now has been my way of liberating myself from 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 the present presentness yeah that it seems like every word you use you're like oh I said that breath oh I said breathe oh I said you know care yeah. you know <laughs> it's very very difficult not to feel the presence of of the pandemic but you know you look at history and the history of pandemics or pandemics would go on for you know yeah. sometimes people's entire lifetimes from yeah. the moment they were born to the moment they died um and I, I think part of me is right now trying to struggle to find that and locate within myself a sort of an ability to think okay if I had to live like you know whatever um live with COVID for another 20 years how, you know, what can I do to live differently so that I'm still not in a space of waiting, so I'm still active. Yeah. I will say one of the benefits, like you said, Zoom. Yeah. I am, another thing I'm going to participate in this spring is I'm giving a talk on Lynn Hedginian's um, text from Tribunal um, and the color red and autobiography of red by Ann Carson. 
And the exciting thing is like, I'm certainly going to try to find their emails and say, hey, I'm going to talk about you guys. This is happening right. in case you want to check it out. Um, and, and that's kind of fun because, you know, not that they will necessarily want to come, right. but the possibility that they could decide to listen in or whatever is is new. Whereas this little conference in like a corner of France where I'm going to talk about them, otherwise they would probably never know. And maybe that's they right. still will never know, but, you know, I'm going to try. <laughs> and, and, you know, people will, well-leaning people will forward it to them and say, you know, this is, this is uh, writing about you. So they're talking about your work. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, before I, before I, before I say my glowing uh, praise for the book. <laughs> well, you know, I just want to thank you for inviting me to do this, but also for supporting my work with the initial publication of Afterlife. One of the difficulties as I've grown as a writer and I live abroad is that I'm using more than one language. In fact, I'm using more than two languages sometimes. Yeah. And you were the first who said, hey, we wanna, we wanna publish this. And as opposed to, oh my God, that's not all in English. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, I mean, you are of course wonderfully situated in a country that has two native languages, right? That's totally open to what's going on there. Um, but it, it was really important to me. And I think, you know, um, was very exciting and, and has opened me up to also learning, you know, we're slow, some of us out here, you know, getting in touch with even more exciting Canadian writers through, through these talks and through the publications you put out. So thank you. Well, the, the, I, the admiration is mutual. So thank you. I, I mean, I was so happy that we had, and I, I still um, brag about the fact that we have a bilingual chapbook, you know, that I, we published a bilingual chapbook. So I was happy about that. So especially, but the, the work itself is, is quite great. So, so what I'd like to say about Lilith, a novel in fragments, is the story of a woman who is lost, finding freedom and identity through the senses, away from the he toward the wild, the ink stains her own marks. With biblical and mythological references, the incorporation of works of art, wallpaper lines of text by contemporary poets, especially by women and about women, Jennifer K. Dick um, creates a gorgeous dream canvas of color, perfume, texture, motion, and emotion. There's a yearning for freedom here that many women will recognize. Thank you so much. That's such a wonderful, wonderful piece you've composed about this. I'm so touched to hear it and for your reading, your close attention to this work. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, so we'll say thanks to Jennifer K. Dick for being on the show, to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for the theme song, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. Upcoming guests include Razika Revolva, Dominique Parisien, Jennifer Mulligan, and Lisa Richter so far. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.